You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In today's episode, Am Joe Hall sits down with Darcy Bennett to learn more about the dangers of stigma against homelessness and substance use in law, healthcare, and policymaking. Darcy is the co-author of Project Inclusion, a report from Pivot Legal Society that looks at systemic barriers to the health and safety of people experiencing the impacts of poverty and homelessness across the province. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on Below the Radar this week. We're with uh, Darcy Bennett, uh, who uh, for a number of years worked with the Pivot Legal Society and is now doing uh, other work. Uh, But uh, welcome, Darcy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Tarsi, I wanted to begin with, uh, recently you were uh, involved in launching a report in December of uh, 2018 called Project Inclusion, uh, Confronting um, Anti-Homeless and Anti-Substance User Stigma, uh, a fairly major report. And I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about how the, the project came to be and, and what some of the findings were. All right. So Project Inclusion um, was a major initiative of Pivot Legal Society, and it was really based on a recognition that as an organization that was sort of born and raised in the downtown east side and had historically been looking at legal and human rights issues in this neighborhood, um, the, the organization was getting more and more calls from communities across the province. So communities that were dealing with homelessness, communities that were dealing with substance use and some of the harms associated with that for people and who didn't have the kinds of supports and networks that exist in this community where people have been doing grassroots work to improve the housing situation, to um, bring about harm reduction, those kinds of things. So we were the organization was getting those calls, um, taking on some legal work. But there hadn't been sort of the deep listening that had happened at Pivot in its early days in the downtown east side. Pivot's sort of theory of change is really based on the idea that people who are experiencing harms are the experts. And that if we start in listening to those stories and then sort of build out the legal strategy from there, we're going to get optimal results. So Project Inclusion was an opportunity to really sort of pull back and do some of that listening and to figure out what does it mean to be homeless outside of Vancouver, outside of the downtown east side? How is the opioid crisis impacting people who live outside of Vancouver? And what else is happening that we're not even aware of? Um, So that is really where the impetus for the project came. The way that the project was organized was really looking at um, how BC is broken up into five 
health authorities. So that's sort of the general framework. And what we were able to do was select two communities in each of those five health authorities. Now, one of the first things we realized is BC is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Williams Lake. You so grew I've up been, in Williams Lake. I played basketball and volleyball, went to a lot of northern communities up there. It's a big, It's big a pro. big place. So when you start to think about um, picking two communities in the northern health region already, you're just, you're leaving vast areas areas of the province untouched. Um, But we were able to put in place some criteria. We looked at things like bylaws in various communities. Um, We reached out to service providers because one thing we did need to have was an anchor in that community that we could reach out to. And so I would say one of the weaknesses is that we didn't actually reach those communities where there was no one to Mm. talk to, nobody who sort of wanted to engage with us. There was always a champion in each community that we went to. And it was really an opportunity to go in agenda free and talk to people who are sort of living the intersections of the crises that are going on around drug policy. Yeah. And and so what were your findings as you went around the north into some of the smaller communities in relation to um, some of the findings you already had from uh, the the work that uh, Pivot does in the downtown east side? What what were overlaps and what were differences as you went around the regions? So, I mean, I think the overarching overlap across the province is that these issues are everywhere. They're not geographically specific. Um, I think it was really shocking for us to realize as people who live in um, sort of southern BC that people are sleeping rough in northern climates. We were in the north in late August and it was already getting cold. We realized that everywhere we went, issues around policing came up. I would say that was by and large, no matter where we went, what the specific issues were in that community, um, the bulk of what we heard was about policing. And that makes sense because when you're living in public space, that really is that point of um, interface for people. A lot of what we recognized was that in the downtown east side, there is a culture of activism, of peer engagement, um, where there's a little bit less shame and stigma. Um, People often had a lot of internalized shame and stigma when they were talking to us. Um, There wasn't sort of the same level of people feeling empowered to talk about their rights as people who are experiencing homelessness or people who use drugs. So we definitely noticed that gap. Um, And the other thing that we noticed was that in every community we were in, there was one or two service providers who were doing an amazing job with very minimal resources. So that was actually a really amazing thing to see wherever we went across the community, uh, these communities. Um, I imagine uh, in, in, you know, in, in having the kind of concentration of services that are in the downtown east side there have been uh, there has been this culture of advocacy that's really important and an articulation of uh, the issues happening that oftentimes circulate in the media, but when you go to places like New Westminster or even uh, Wally in in Surrey, that uh, even there the le- the amount of uh, advocacy access that people have is far less, or that the NGOs oftentimes that are operating uh, are not um, as visible in the public eye uh, for for complex reasons that that include uh, uh, the inability to be visible. And I imagine in small towns, there's a kind 
kind of collegiality to being in a small town where issues like policing or systemic issues, uh, there may not be um, the capacity to do that type of advocacy in that local context. What we found in a lot of communities was that it just wasn't even safe for a service provider to be doing that kind of advocacy. So a lot of stigma, a lot of sort of public conversation, and that's actually something that we did end up doing is media scans and looking at what the public conversations were in a number of these communities. Um, So a lot of room for even very basic education work that maybe has happened here in Vancouver over time. you know, often only one media outlet um, locally. So maybe not very balanced considerations around that. And then also for people, there is not a lot of opportunity for sort of anonymity. So um, in a small community, if you are homeless and you speak out, you're also very, very visible in a way that you just aren't in Vancouver. Uh, so in, in in terms of the process of compiling the report, what were some of the main uh, findings that you, uh, do you have recommendations to government and other bodies that you? Yeah, so the report um, has over 20 recommendations. So the way the report is structured, um, we started by just painting a sh- snapshot of sort of what does it mean to be somebody who's experiencing homelessness or somebody who's criminalized because they use substances in BC. Um, and then from there, we really found three major areas that our recommendations tend to be centered around. So the first is policing. That was overall the major issue that came out for people. We were in eight RCMP municipalities and two municipal police force municipalities. So we weren't really able to parse out um, the differences, but we did definitely see some sort of preliminary differences in RCMP jurisdictions in terms of people feeling like they had access to police complaints, things like that. Um, and then within that policing piece, we also sort of looked at the web of policing that people are experiencing. So yes, it's the sort of police as the formal institution, but layered on top of that in a lot of communities, you're dealing with bylaw officers, you're dealing with private security. The second set of recommendations and stories and findings really center on the cycle of criminalization that people who use substances and people who live outdoors are dealing with. So really focused on court-imposed conditions, um, conditions of bail, those sorts of things. So in every community that we went to, the issue of red zones came up. So those no-go areas that people are told they're not allowed to spend time in. And in pretty much every community, even though they're supposed to be tailored to specific offenses, people could draw the no-go zone or the red zone on a map for us, um, which was a really interesting finding. And that tended to be where people's food was, where access to harm reduction was, where access to accessible medical treatment was. So that was really major. Um, I think the thing that surprised us that we hadn't kind of gone in thinking about was the extent to which sobriety conditions and no-carry paraphernalia conditions were impacting people as well. Um, So those are conditions where if somebody um, is... Before the courts, they're told they can't carry any kind of harm reduction supplies labeled as paraphernalia. And particularly in the north, we talked to a number of indigenous people who were criminalized based on their alcohol use, actually, around the role that perpetual sobriety conditions was having in terms of keeping them trapped in this cycle of criminalization. 
So that was sort of the second set of findings and recommendations. And then the third set, we looked at service gaps. Um, We made a decision not to look at things like housing stock adequacy of income assistance rates, not because those things weren't important and they didn't come up, but because they are so well documented that we know that has to happen. But what we really tried to look at is the other ways in which there's barriers to accessing things like hospitals. We didn't go in asking people about hospitals, but in every community we went to, we heard about barriers in terms of accessing hospitals. So that became an area that we looked at. Um, We looked at just the barriers to accessing income assistance, the barriers to um, getting on disability assistance, the number of people we spoke to in small communities with pressing health needs and disabilities who weren't able to access disability was um, really, I think, another shocking finding. Then the other thing we did with this report is we actually pulled back and we said, what's going on in all of these places? What's sort of the underlying thread to all of this? And that's where we really landed on this concept of stigma. And our goal was not just to say, you know, people stigmatize, but really to look at how stigma becomes embedded in law and policy. So our sort of final overarching chapter and recommendation looks at BC creating a process for really auditing for when stigma starts to shape the legislative agenda, for when stigmatizing beliefs start to shape the policy that we create. Um, And so that's sort of the big overarching recommendation is we need to be thinking about stigma, we need to have a more complex understanding of it and move beyond thinking about it as something that we hold as individuals and actually see how it's embedded in our law and policy. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's other jurisdictions that you drew on to uh, take a look at what's happening here. Are there um, areas that are doing uh, interesting work uh, in this area in terms of of recommendations? And also, um, I'm wondering if um, areas of uh, human rights policy in BC mm-hmm. or, or nationally could be useful in terms of advancing a kind of um, a lens by which to advance some of these pieces at the policy level as well. Yeah, so there is a really important um, human rights piece to this and sort of something that we can draw on other jurisdictions um, in Canada. So One of the real deficits in terms of human rights protection in British Columbia is that we don't protect people on the basis of social condition. So that's a recommendation that we're making. So what that means is um, if you experience discrimination, say, at the hands of a private security company, and the real underlying basis for that is your apparent poverty, um, that you're sort of coded as somebody who is experiencing homelessness, we actually don't have a human rights mechanism to protect against that discrimination. And that's something that came up really clearly in terms of starting to think about how can we actually take on some of these issues that we're seeing. Um, So just from that sort of perspective, that's a really important piece. And it's something that other jurisdictions in Canada do um, and that we recommend. We also are sort of at a moment in British Columbia where um, we're moving towards bringing back a human rights commission. So I think there's a real opportunity to start looking at some of these things systematically, um, expecting that somebody in a small community in northern British Columbia is going to bring forward 
support a human rights complaint because of what happened in a hospital is not realistic. I think there's really an opportunity to look at this systematically um, and particularly around issues of homelessness and substance use and that intersection in people's lives. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I know that when the NDP was in opposition uh, provincially, uh, there was a private member's bill brought forward by Jenny Kwan at the time. So certainly in opposition, the NDP government supported uh, that position. And in a context now with a minority government, certainly would be, I think, an important time to put something like that uh, forward again. And people like Margot Young at UBC Law and uh, others, a number of NGOs have been really supportive. Um, in the work that you were doing, did you also draw on some of the work? I know that the BC Civil Liberties Association have done some work related to policing in BC. And I'm wondering if there were some overlaps or connections with some of the the work uh, they've done related to identifying uh, policing issues. Yeah, so we definitely looked at a lot of the policing literature that is out there, a lot of the reports that have been done. Um, and especially when you get outside of Vancouver, there's not a lot of work that's been done in BC. Um, we were able to look at things BC Civil Liberties Association has done. We also relied on um, Human Rights Watch's work um, with Indigenous women in Northern communities. And there was a lot of overlap there in terms of the issues that they'd identified and in terms of the issues that were coming up um, in terms of Indigenous women feeling targeted by police. I think something that was very... Um, marked for us was the use of cells and how much time pe Indigenous people that we spoke to were spending being taken into cells, being taken into the drug tank, as they described it. Um, so there was a lot of overlap with that work that had already been done there in terms of those issues, um, in terms of the reasons that people don't call the police, even when they're very vulnerable. So all of that was sort of, that came up in the interviews. Uh, when I first met you, uh, Darcy, I think you were still working on your PhD at the time uh, at Pivot uh, Legal Society sometime before the Olympics. I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure it was. And so <laughs> you've spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time working uh, in the neighborhood and broader than that. And I think you did sociology uh, prior to that. Wondering if you can sort of uh, talk about it in, in, in seeing the vantage point of um, law and uh, policy related work. Uh, in the inner city neighborhood, kind of uh, the kinds of things that uh, stuck with you and, and the kinds of things you reflect on in the work that you're able to do uh, through Pivot and other uh, organizations in terms of the possibility of uh, law reform and the places at which, you know, you run into barriers in terms of trying to work at that level in terms of policy and, and legal change in terms of how it connects to social justice. That's an easy question. Um, <laughs> um, so if I am to sort of think back, and I first started at Pivot in 2006, um, yeah, and it was while I was working on my PhD, and I think that the intersection between sort of community advocacy and communities getting these issues even onto the legislative agenda and the outcomes that we get is so important. So lawyers, sociologists who are talking about policy, we can do all this work in a vacuum, but it really is that community mobilization that keeps the ball rolling and gets it onto the legislative agenda. So I think that's really important. Um, and what we realized, I think, with Project Inclusion and going around the province is that um, it takes, even when you get 
precedent-setting cases. Um, that work needs to happen. Like communities need to be empowered to make it their own. So it was so interesting to talk to people in communities around um, BC and realize that things we sort of took for granted, for example, um, even being able to access clean harm reduction supplies just weren't even their realities. So the idea that we'll, you know, sort of get a big win in Vancouver, and then that will trickle across to other communities. It, we need to be empowering people across the province in, locally to really be champions for those things. Um, we were really astounded, I think, by the role that by local bylaws play in people's lives. Um, so you sort of have things working, not even at cross purposes, because that imagines that it's not intentional. But, um, you know, you have, on the one hand, um, conversations, say, at the federal level or the provincial level around responding to the opioid crisis through harm reduction, through overdose prevention services, all of those things. And then you have other communities in BC that are actually trying to use their, say, their zoning powers, for example, to stop these things. So it, we really do need to be empowering local communities to take these issues on and to make space for the people who are experiencing these issues um, to step into that and to realize that um, we're always vulnerable to steps being taken backwards if there's not somebody there watching, if there's not somebody there who is able to support people, to hold people to account. So I think that's really what we recognized was um, that people were operating, it didn't really necessarily matter to them um, what the decision and insight said, or that um, <clears throat> we had a provincial government that was really supporting um, an effective overdose response because that wasn't the reality in their community. Now, uh, when you were at uh, Pivot Legal Side, I mean, what a quite a dynamic organization and such mm -hmm. a phenomenal history with uh, people like John Richardson, who founded it, Katrina Pacey, uh, David Eby, who went mm -hmm. on to become now her attorney general, yeah. Laura Track, I think, is at BC Civil Liberties uh, Association. Is there um, some uh, particular campaigns or legal cases that you remember particularly uh, in terms of what excited you about uh, being there that you really think of as victories? In terms of like the real victories, um, I think that it's the legal victory. So you can look at a case like um, Pivot's involvement and the Bedford decision around um, Canada's prostitution laws. That was a really important legal victory. There's been you know, new legislation put into place, but it really affirmed um, a lot of what women in this community were saying about safety and the impacts of those laws. Um, related to that, another really important legal victory was the Suave case, which actually changed the law of standing in Canada. So that was a case that was originally meant to challenge the prostitution laws and ended up in the process of um, women being told they couldn't organize as a collective and bring that case forward, actually making it easier for marginalized people to get in front of the court with public interest issues. So those were really important legal victories. And 
as important as any of that is just um, the shift in conversation that can happen through those kinds of cases. Um, I think that the work that happened in terms of bringing those cases before the courts in terms of having public conversations, in terms of shifting the language that people were using was just as important. I remember actually um, during the Suave case when it made its way to the Supreme Court of Canada, I had traveled to Ottawa with uh, a member of Suave and we were sitting um, in the Supreme Court and one of the justices used the word sex worker. And I think like that shift is as important as the legal victories in terms of how we sort of impact stigma. Um, a lot of the work that has happened in terms of encampments, um, sometimes it's hard to see the impacts of the victories uh, and because people are still experiencing homelessness. But again, in terms of positioning people who are experiencing homelessness as members of their communities with a right to occupy space, like as well as the legal victories, just that sort of shift in thinking and the way we think and talk about these issues, I think has been just as important. Hmm. And, and Darcy, what are you, what are you up to now? What am I up to now? Um, I am up to sort of a combination of things. So as you were saying, I have been, um, with Pivot for a lot of years, I also spent some time with EcoJustice in there. So a lot of time in the nonprofit sector, um, and particularly the nonprofit law sector. And um, it is very hard, long, challenging work. Um, the systems that we're up against are well-funded, well-resourced. Um, there's a lot of demand for change work. And what I recognized through my time is that doing that work, um, preparing people coming into that work to be able to be sustainable in the long haul is sort of a piece of work in its own right. So over the last year, I've been training as a coach. Um, I've been doing a lot of work around organizational development. And right now I'm finding ways to sort of share that with people who are doing this work um, so that these organizations can be strong and resilient. They can take on these like, very long-term uh, battles and that we can grow the pool of people who are out there doing this work. There's a few dozen of those organizations right in this <laughs> building here at 312 Main, the cop yeah. shop. So I want to say thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Darcy Bennett for coming in and sharing her thoughts and research with us. You can read the full report and learn more about the work of Pivot Legal Society by visiting them at pivotlegal.org. Thanks as always to our production team, including Jamie Lee Gonzalez, Maria Cecilia Saba, and myself, Melissa Roach. Thanks also to Davis Steele for our theme music, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.